so let's just say you're right. Let's just say that you're a good person and they are terrible, but they're terrible because they're ignorant. Okay? Then whose job is it to put up with somebody? Right? If you're the the strong, strong. Paul says the strong need to put up with the weak. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and the gospel and recover the true faith. And Alex is not here today. He's not. He's under the weather today. And so it's just Kent and Nathan. We're in a series called Recovering Faith. Let me do a quick review. Do it. As a review, our series argued that the gospel rescues us from the clear and present danger of cultural corruption and internal personal corruption that leads to pers- interpersonal breakdown. So there's this clear and present danger and it's corruption. It's outside of us. It's inside of us. And the gospel rescues us by transferring to us the faith of the Son so that living by the faith of the Son, by sonship faith, we have the resources to live free personally and to live in free and loving community with one another. And there's a lot to this, so I would encourage our listeners to go back through our series, Covering Faith. And one of the points we made in this series is that living under the authority of the gospel looks like cruciform love and resurrection faith. And that plays out in our lives in a thousand different places. Cruciform love and resurrection faith. That's one of the themes of our series. Last week in episode 15, we said that some common healthy expressions of cruciform love and resurrection faith are corporate prayer, gospel rehearsal, and loving confrontation. So the way we really express that cruciform love and resurrection faith in community with one another involves corporate prayer and rehearsing the gospel together and lovingly confronting one another. So you can go back and listen to episode 15 for that discussion. Today we're moving on to the next point in our closing section of this series. The four closing points are evangelize, don't proselytize, retool discipleship, adore Christ as one flesh, and let God rule his kingdom. Today, we're at point number three, adore Christ as one flesh. That's a good one. It is a good one, huh? It is a good one. Uh, Adore Christ, worship Christ as one flesh. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's some religious language there, adore and there's and then this one flesh concept that comes out of the Bible. That's not language we use. No, that's true. <laughs> uh, so let's let's explain to people what you mean by that, Nathan. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Maybe we will. Um, I think that um, so worship is this ancient inclination people have. Uh, people try to offer things to someone, something they revere. That just seems to be a human instinct to give some sort of a gift, even if the one that they're giving the gift to can't really receive it. So um, I live in a graveyard and, uh, you know, you walk through the the graveyard and there'll be someone will put a beer can on the headstone of a dead 20 something, you know, or they'll put a an orange on the headstone of some. Um, Asian patriarch, mm-hmm. right? And and um, so you think, why is this? You know, uh, wouldn't it be better better used in other ways or or whatever? Um, and yet we seem to have this need to offer something to somebody, even if they can't receive it. And um, and that's just been part of human history. And and even in the history of Israel, as we read in the Bible, that there are these offerings that are made. And yet the Bible also, you know, the Bible prescribes these offerings, how they're supposed to be offered. You know, God's kind of this finicky eater, you know, just bring me this and not that and this part of it, and not that part of it. And put these kind of herbs in this incense and, you know, just I want my meat with salt on it. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so there's this but but everyone knows that this is not actually being consumed by a deity. You know, you didn't leave it there and there are bite marks out of it. You know, it's not like Santa and the cookies or whatever mm-hmm. that that everyone sees that the deity is not consuming this and that, you know, it's going up in smoke. So two things are happening. You If you bring a, a sheep or something and God says, hey, don't just bring me any sheep bring me best of your flock right and and so 
and it's going to be slaughtered. And some of it is going to go on the altar and burn, burn up, right? The fat portions, the parts of the kidney and stuff like that. Other parts of it are going to be eaten by this priestly class, this Levitical class of people. And, and so they're eating it on God's behalf, if you will, right? And in no case is God himself enjoying this meal, okay? And so this, this is more of a, a ritual, a symbol. It's, it's a, a gesture. So you think about like, I don't know if I've used this analogy here before, so forgive me if I have, but um, it's like when Vincent Van Gogh gave his ear, right? And, yeah, and you did use that one. That. Yeah, and so there's a gesture there, but the but the the girl the doesn't have any use of the ear. Yeah, she didn't have she didn't benefit from it. She wasn't deaf in one ear, and then sewing that on mm-hmm. didn't fix her. There was so it's a, it's a gesture, but it's and and sometimes there's a place for that in love, mm-hmm. some sort of a dramatic gesture, you mm-hmm. know. So you turn up outside the God's bedroom window, holding a boombox over your head, wearing a trench coat, you know. That you're making a gesture, but it's not something that's actually benefiting that other person. You're just demonstrating, here's the price I'm willing to pay for your love. Yeah. Right. Um, and and so this concept of adoration, and then when you hear the gospel, if somebody believes the gospel, right? So here's this, this glorious being who lived in pure bliss, and yet that bliss was somehow besmirched by the fact that you were going to suffer in mm-hmm. some way. And that rather than allow that unmitigated suffering that you would go through, he would give himself and he would go through um, unimaginable pain, uh, psychologically, emotionally, physically uh, on your behalf. Now you may be like, eh, right. But if you believe it, you, you accept that as a gift and you say, I, I I do receive that, and, and you benefit from it. Your instinct is going to be to adore that, hopefully, you know, right? Uh, that you, you'll, you'll want to give to him. You'll want to show your love to him. So we have this desire to, to adore Christ and to adore God. We have this innate draw to worship. And yet in every culture and every place, that, that, that's a frustrated desire. You know, even in the Psalms, God says, why are you bringing all this? Right. You know, it's like he prescribed it in one on one hand. But then, you know, he's saying that, that that's not that this isn't the end all. This isn't the purpose of it all. That this just is a love letter isn't the isn't the full expression of love. It's just a description of the love. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you have no relationship with somebody, but you're writing them love letters every week, well, you're not in a you're not really considered to be a lover you're considered to be a stalker mm-hmm. right uh that there there has to be something beyond that and so god's saying well this is about this needs to be in a context of relationship right and yet god is distant he's not actually consuming these offerings that we're giving and so when i say adore christ as one flesh I, that something has happened when god became a person and has given us a part of himself that's called the Holy Spirit, right? That he's in part of himself is kind of heretical to even say, but he's given us himself, right? That he, he indwells the church. And because of that, he can now receive these gifts that he is consuming them because he is within each of his people, each of those who are remade in his image. So Jesus Remember, we've said in the past that, that Jesus has become the Spirit of Christ. That yeah. He, yeah, that he indwells us, that Christ indwells us. And so this one man has become a multitude of people, but yet there's this organic connection between us all. And so if I give something to you, I'm giving it to him, not just in figure, not just a pay it forward sort of a way, but he is truly receiving it through you. Right. Right. Again, uh, and again, uh, in that in that image, worship isn't singing songs to God or praying prayers to God, but worship is loving our brother or sister in Christ. Right. And in giving to them, we give to God, mm-hmm. and God is able to receive because God is in them. Right. Exactly. And so, uh, I, I think we talked. I talked some in the what will be a book, maybe, uh, this idea of a, uh, 
mission statement. What is God's mission statement? Um, and, and so this is really this, this what I would call an exhortation um, for the church that we should adore Christ as one flesh. It's, it's kind of paramount. Um, when we formulate mission statements, and Kent, you've been in church, and um, why do we do it? Why do we do mission statements for a church? Well, I mean, I suppose we do it because there's cultural pressure to do it. It feels like something you should do because mm-hmm. organizations in our culture have mission statements. Yeah. So for one, we do it for that reason. For another reason, maybe a better reason would be to say, to give us direction. Here's mm-hmm. where we're going. Yeah. People have a sense of vision and direction now. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love me a good mission statement. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I really have been in pursuit of the, of the perfect one. It just winds my clock as a, as a ADD task oriented person. So here I am, I'm somebody, I feel like I should get things done or I'm, I'm just kind of not successful or I'm not worthwhile if I don't get things done. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm so scattered that I can, I start a lot of things that don't get accomplished and and the more things I feel like are important to do, the less I get done. Okay. Yeah. So a mission statement for me is like, man, just tell me what is that paramount thing so that I can just have the resources to, mm-hmm. to call out and, and then to get the thing done. Yeah. And if I can get the thing done, then all that I've left undone will, will be okay. Right. And so that's really been important to me and, uh, and, I think it is important. It is important to know what the thing is. Right. Right. That whole story of Mary and Martha, mm-hmm. right? And Martha's distracted about many things, right? She's overwrought. Mm-hmm. How many of us can identify? Yeah. Right. And and here's Mary accomplishing nothing, you know. Um, and really, I think doing something that was probably, I, I would certainly be resentful of. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet Jesus says, hey, you're, you're distracted about many things. There's only a few things that are important and one that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Wow, that really does boil it right on down, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> you know? um, and, and, and Jesus yet, was focused. He, right? he, 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 uh, so he affirms Mary mm-hmm. for her single-minded devotion to uh, sitting at his feet, listening right. to him, loving him, worshiping him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he himself was focused. He went to the cross. He didn't yeah. allow himself to be deterred Mm -hmm. he had a mission yeah and his mission and hers were very similar weren't they i mean we could look at jesus and say look at this mess look Mm -hmm. at all that is wrong in the world look at all the people who are sick and the poor and the oppressed the enslaved the Mm -hmm. marginalized look at the inequity what are you doing here we are working ourselves to death to try to to somehow offset the pain in the world and what are you about you're just giving yourself up, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and Mary is doing much the same thing mm-hmm. um, in her own way mm-hmm. there. And what they have in common is this kind of, is this, this being swept into this fellowship that's built around adoration that Jesus is really offering himself, yes, for humankind, but from his vantage point, it's really just, to the will of the Father. I mean, from this limited human vantage point, he's not seeing multitudes of people. You know, he's being expected to just turn it loose, to to really abandon even the 12 people or the 11, you know, be abandoned by one and then abandon the rest. The, the ones that are really counting on him, the ones that have stuck with him, he's even leaving them behind. And so what kind of mission statement is that? Right? We As we as we formulate mission statements in the church, I, I don't know if we're necessarily ready to craft one that would resonate with the actual spirit of Christ. Um, but because our mission statements really are about what we hope to accomplish for his sake. Mm-hmm. And yet Mary didn't seem to be concerned about what she was accomplishing and Jesus didn't either. So what do we, you know, where do we go from there? How do we, how do we continue on? How do we conduct ourselves? Um, and so we have to be wary of the dangers of church mission statements, even ones that come from scripture, because they tend to be born out of our desire to accomplish a thing for God. Mm-hmm. And even that seemingly positive desire can quickly result 
in some pretty fleshly, non-kingdom kinds of things. So in his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer says this very challenging thing. He says, God hates visionary dreaming. <laughs> what? <laughs> let's, let's bring that to the next church leadership conference, right? <laughs> This year, the main session and the theme of Summit Leadership is going to be God Hates Visionary Dreaming. Right? <laughs> go over like a lead balloon. Right? <laughs> now go home, you turds. You know, I mean, what in the world? God hates visionary dreaming. How dare you, right? How dare you say such a thing? He says it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Hmm. Most church leaders would probably uh, resent that. As a church leader, I can affirm it. As somebody who's definitely aspired to that kind of visionary dreaming, I think it definitely has a tendency. I can't say what it does for everybody, but uh, I think it has a tendency. Uh, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community and as if his dream binds men together. And that's not just an act. In a lot of churches, it is that visionary dream that binds people together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, these com- these are, there are these compelling mission statements and compelling church programs and compelling leaders. And the church really is gathered around that vision and that leader. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems good. Yeah, I mean, a lot of churches. If you do vis- if you do vision and mission right, then every Sunday you're going to recite that vision from the front. Won't mm-hmm. you? be it'll be part of your logo. It'll be on your uh, masthead and your letters. It'll be on your you know our t-shirts and it'll be up on banners and the thing. If, mm-hmm. if you're really um, serious about this thing, okay. Yeah, now let's talk about these mission statements because the healthy churches today, mm-hmm. uh, and the growing churches today, and also churches that aren't are small and and maybe not growing, but they still adopt the same mission statements. Mm-hmm. The healthy version of mission statements today has to do with making disciples, mm-hmm. and loving God and loving neighbor, and they right. have different ways of saying it. Mm-hmm. Each one has their own creative expression of that, but it always nowadays is uh, these mission statements and vision statements are crafted around. The great commandment right. to love God and love your neighbor mm-hmm. and the great commission to make disciples. Yeah. Yeah. And man, those are good. They're compelling. Um, and I, I share some in the book and I'll put it in the episode notes. Um, but about how, how powerful and uh, some of those can be. Um, and certainly I, I wouldn't argue against the great commandment or the, or the great commission. But what out of why is it out of the whole Bible we pick those two? Um, there doesn't seem to be this kind of a marker that's like, and this is God's purpose. This is the intention for the church. So you're not picking on the great commandment. You're not picking on the great commission. You're just asking the question, why do we say this is the purpose of the church? Right. And you're asking that question, especially in light of the fact that Paul seems to have said what the purpose of the church is. Right. Which yeah. is something different. Right. Yeah. So we take the great commandment, um, really, and the great commission. And, and both of those are addressed to individuals. So we as individual Christians, we need to consider those. We need to obey them. But they don't speak necessarily to what we would consider solely the work of, of the, the group. Right. And so what happens is, is that we, we really abdicate the great commandment and the great commission to the church. And so the church will tell us how to love each other and how to love God. Um, and we miss the innumerable opportunities that we just have organically in our life. We become compartmentalized, so we may sign up to volunteer at church, but then be super selfish when it comes to just decisions out in our civic life because we've obeyed it. Right in the context of church, because our church's mission statement is that we should love one another, and our church has told us that loving each other is X, Y, and Z, and we did that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the Great Commission, right? It, that there is this. The Great Commission is is very pedestrian. It's we see it as collecting money and sending people overseas, but Jesus is saying, as you go, make disciples. So it's go isn't the mandate 
right? He's just saying that making disciples is going to be a part of your life if you were his follower. Mm-hmm. As, as we move through life, we're going to be influencing people for Jesus just through who we are. We can be intentional about it. We ought to be. But neither of those seem to say, and this is God's purpose for the church. While Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 does say that. And so that's, it seems if we're going to look through scripture for a mission statement for the church, we should pick the one where, you know, someone inspired says, then this is it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, uh, in Ephesians 3, 10, it says his intent, right? His purpose was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there's the, the mission statement of the, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Mm-hmm. And that was according to his eternal purpose. So it's bookmarked by mission vision, purpose, language. So if we want to say, what's the purpose of the church? Here's a statement that is bookmarked by purpose, right? And it is bookended, I should say. So his intent was that. And then he says it, this is according to his eternal purpose. Mm -hmm. So there's this thing about the church, something about the church that is some shining example that even supernatural beings even heavenly beings are going to stand in awe and they're going to worship god they're going to glorify him for something about the church and it's going to um it's going to to dumbfound i think (laughs) you know um and so what is that Mm, what is that one thing right and um so we don't have to wonder ephesians 3 2 through 5 so here's this thing, right? This purpose that God has, has purposed through the church. He says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. So here's this mystery, okay? As I have written, already written briefly, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And we've built up this before, right? So He's made known the mystery. He's you know made known this mystery through revelation. It's it's the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to other people, to people in other generations. Okay, so this is this is like the meaning of life. This is the whole purpose of everything, and this is something that has been eluding humanity as as people have been feeling around the edges trying to understand. And this mystery is revealed to the holy. Uh, by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Man, this is huge. And then this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And that's this big thing that's just been waiting for humankind to see, right? Right, and it was so huge in his life and in his day because it actually was a major transition from a Jewish identity to a multi-ethnic group yeah. uh, identified around Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and faith in him. Today, in the Gentile church, mm-hmm. we've lost touch with the impact of that, right. the importance of that, mm-hmm. or the implications of that for us. Right. Because I think that's where we need to go is like, how is that relevant to us today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I just want to highlight how important it was that Paul, initially, the persecutions that Paul suffered were not because he was going around saying Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we would expect that that would be the reason he would be persecuted. But there were a lot of cockamamie mystery cults in the Roman Empire, okay? The Romans had a very much uh, kind of a pluralistic freedom of religion culture. So if you go and say something bonkers about this Jewish rabbi is, is actually God in the flesh, right? You're not going to be executed for that. But if you begin to challenge this Jewish in this title on God, that, the, that they're entitled to him uniquely, 
if you begin to tear down this barrier between Jew and Gentile and say, hey, all of this stuff, all of your um, spiritual collateral is now worthless. Cash it in. You know, we're going to give you pennies on the dollar for all of your spiritual collateral. Now you've made enemies. Um, and that was, if you look in, like, especially Acts 22, where Paul, he's given his defense in Jerusalem. He's standing on the steps of this Roman garrison, and he switches from Greek to Hebrew. Uh-huh. And these Romans are sitting there, and all of a sudden they can't understand what Paul's saying. Uh-huh. But, but, every, but you can hear a pin drop. It's like when they heard him speaking in Hebrew, they all fell silent. And, and he begins to recount his conversion experience. And he begins to make this claim that this, that this one that the leaders crucified is the very Christ, you know. And, and there's these big implications, spiritual, religious implications, things that would get you killed, say, in a Muslim world. Like if you were saying somebody was greater than Muhammad, you mm-hmm. know. Like, but, but, and so he's, he's making these, these religious statements about a guy who was just executed, you know, a couple of decades earlier or 15 years mm-hmm. earlier. He's making these big claims, okay? This ought to be what incites the riot. And everyone's quiet until he says, and so, and then he sent me to preach unto to the nations, to the Gentiles. And when they heard this, they erupt in rage. You know, it says that they're gnashing their teeth, they're throwing dirt in the air. I mean, have you ever been that angry, mm-hmm. right? But what gets them super mad it's this idea that the Gentiles are being let in. Uh, I don't know if we can fully appreciate that, but it but it ought to challenge us in the church because I think we have lines that we make, and we like people who are like this are in, people who are like that are out. We have to question those dichotomies. Mm-hmm. We have to let those perimeters fall mm-hmm. and consider: can someone be? Can someone have the faith of Christ and be on the other side of my divide? Mm-hmm. And that's where we really begin to be challenged to the core because, and that's when we begin to realize that we really built our own sense of well-being on being a part of a group or being on the right side of a, of a divide. And, and you know, when, when it comes to these mission statements that are built on the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, and we're, and we're really leveraging those to go and build big churches, this doctrine would have been sabotage to growing a movement. Because the, uh, the old church growth principle is like the homogeneous unit principle. We right. need to get people who are in our social circles mm-hmm. to come and we'll grow this through like people who are like us. Right. So imagine Paul walks into the South, American South, Mississippi in 1960. And he's just been hired as the pastor of First Baptist Church of Tupelo, Mississippi in 1960. And he says, guys, I have one agenda, and that is to integrate this church with the black church down the street. We're not going to do anything else until we're one body. Uh How big would that church be next year? Right. I can't imagine that it would be big. No, you'd be down to double digits, right? On both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, the black church would empty out and the white church would empty out. You know, I mean, if if you really could impose that kind of a thing, if you said, I'm not going to do anything else until we embrace one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that we will not go an inch forward until we can do that. What would that have done? Right. Could we, could we get together next year and, and, all high fives about you know how much we've done in the name of Jesus, or would it be why are you causing so many problems when we have other things to do, right? Wouldn't that be the pushback you would get from the deacons, mm-hmm. right? And Paul, I promise you, I guarantee you, he would have taken no other direction. He would have done no other thing. That, because in Paul's mind, the purpose of the church is to demonstrate that those who are different and and, uh, historically and culturally, morally, are at odds with one another are becoming one. Right. One flesh through the gospel. Right, right. One body. You know, he says you're members of one body. If 
If we can't be, then it all is for naught. That the miracle of the gospel is that the two become one. And we'll get more into that as we move through this topic. Um, but this notion of Jew and Gentile coming together is, is just one expression. In Paul's day, it was a massive one massive expression it was there was a religious divide that ran between them something that the jews would have said was authorized by god Uh okay and so this was the major divide but it wasn't the only one that the faith that the faith of christ did away with or it doesn't that defies yeah in galatians 3 paul talks about how there is neither jew nor gentile Mm -hmm. slave nor free male nor female so he brings in other divides Right. demonstrates that in his thinking, it's not just the Jews and the Gentiles, but it's all of the ways we're divided. Exactly. Exactly. And so anytime we find that, that there are two, that there is a dichotomy in human society, that the gospel is called into that breach, that we are called to um, supersede it. And I keep wanting to say defy it, but the divide continues to exist. And, and Paul, and we've mentioned this previously, uh, that Paul insisted that people remain culturally different. It would have been one thing if he had allowed the Gentiles to be circumcised and then they just would have been Jews. But if you look at like at Acts 15 where they have this, this discussion, this debate about whether the Gentiles can come in, James, the brother of Jesus, you know, he refers to the prophetic scriptures and, they, and it says that, that the, the nations will be his. And so it, from that, he, he understands. He says David's tent that's fallen down will be rebuilt and, and that the nations you know, will, will come and will be a part of it. Now, it, that wouldn't be true if those people had become Jews. They, it wouldn't mm-hmm. be the nations who are worshiping God. It would be the, just the Jews, mm-hmm. right? And so James understands in reading that prophetic word that, that they have to come in as Gentiles. And if that's true, then then all of these other divides, we have to retain the distinctives and be in one body. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much that we're trying to just smear everything together. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, in his, in his book, Orthodoxy, said that in Christ, red and white stand together in perfect harmony with an abhorrence for pink. Mm-hmm. That's the gospel. That's the church. It's the purpose that there ought to be what's so ironic is is that right wing a lot of people who claim to be christians on the right push back against this drive toward multiculturalism in our society you uh-huh. know um and and maybe there's a there's a good critique for it in that it's being imposed and enforced in ways that aren't uh, very fair but we ought to have been seen as the multicultural group, you know. We ought to have already been seen as those who have um, advocated for that. Yeah, you've quoted Martin Luther King several times mm-hmm. about how he said that it's a shame that the most segregated time of the week is 10 a.m. Sunday morning. Right. I, yeah. I went and saw a movie this past weekend. Yeah. I don't normally like to see Christian movies, but yeah. I saw Jesus Revolution. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, the story of the Jesus movement in the 70s, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And Lonnie Frisbee is this hippie pastor, preacher, hippie preacher, evangelist, mm. who's just come out of the drug culture. And he's um, leading people to Christ. And this formal, formalist, traditionalist pastor, Chuck Smith, welcomes him into his church and allows him to be a guest speaker in his church and bring his hippie friends to this traditional church. And so they depict this this conflict between yeah. the traditional church people and these uh, hip people hippies. Yeah. They're still hippies. Right. They're yeah. just coming to Christ, and they're coming out of the drug culture, and they're coming to Christ, um, and the conflict that emerges there, and mm-hmm. how they have to navigate that, and how some traditional people have to leave because they just yeah. can't put up with it. Um, but Chuck Smith navigates his way through that and makes space for Lonnie and his and his uh, Jesus people. Yeah. And the two become one. Mm-hmm. One movement, one one church, and in that case, God He blessed it, right? He just blessed the junk out of it. I mean, there's we, we made a movie about it. Yeah, it's, that's, it's something other, that became newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what did Chuck do? Did Chuck have some great mission strategy, or did he just live out the gospel in that moment when he was invited to make that decision between choosing what what he saw as being more effective to keeping a large church, or following this 
this one, you know, this being together in one body kind of a thing. Right. I mean, at least in at least in the movie, it was portrayed as this is this is uh, this is the gospel truth that these that we the two must become one. Mm-hmm. We are one in Christ. Yeah, exactly. And and so Paul makes all this point, and then after saying, "Hey, this is the purpose." He really gives us a practical advice on how to live as the church, as individuals, but with the, with the church in mind, with the whole in mind. And so in Ephesians 4, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord then, no guilt, <laughs> right? He's just like, you know, uh, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So man, he has really put this calling way up there. Um, and he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Notice that there's nothing about correct doctrine here. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that these have to do with these interpersonal skills and the pain of being in relationship with somebody. Which, by the way, that says something about the way we do church. If you've never had to put up with somebody in church, you're probably doing church wrong. So are you saying Paul's church program, like contrasted with modern church programs that say um, take the membership class and mm-hmm. um, commit to serve and to give and be on a serve team, mm-hmm. that Paul's church program is learn to put up with one another, mm-hmm. bear with one another, operate in humility toward one another, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Right, yeah. Make every effort to maintain that through the bond of peace. And so, and that says something that unity isn't something we create. It's something that is already there and we can tear it up. You know, we can neglect it. Um, but he's calling us to keep it, to nurture it. It already exists. And this unity is based on these ones that he says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Mm-hmm. So it gets to this idea that God is, he's resident within us. If you want to, to give him something, then bake your brother a lasagna. You know, um, mm-hmm. go put a fence up at his house or work on his car or, you know, watch her kids. Mm-hmm. Um if you really want to give him something. And, and the beauty is, is that it really does away with the, what is always going to happen in a, any community is that there's inequity. And it, and it just it does defy that inequity. And it says, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to give. I'm going to give in his name and, and I'm giving to him and he's giving back to me. And so it's paid. It's covered. And that's, it just facilitates this. This is why the powers, the you know, all of these powers are looking in awe because there's something I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Here's humanity div- normally divided and at war with one another, distrusting one another, mm-hmm. and instead they're laying out their lives for one another. Right. And they're living in harmony and in love, despite their differences. Right, right. And so, you know, Paulus said, hey, you're one body with one another. But then he also says that, Christ. So the church is Christ's body. And then if you get over to, you know, Ephesians chapter five, and and a lot of times we read this as, as marital advice and it is right. He talks about how husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and how wives should submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And, and, and he says, but, but I'm sharing with you a profound mystery. Uh, And, and I'm talking about Christ in the church. So he's like, Look, for practicality's sake, you need to get along with your spouse. But your but your relationship has resident within it this incredible mystery, a profound mystery. He says that Christ and the church are united, that, that the church is Christ's bride. And so when we say, you know, the church is the body of Christ, and then we say the church is the bride of Christ, how can your body be your bride and your bride be your body? Uh-huh. Is he mixing his metaphors? He's just switching things up. He doesn't seem to be speaking metaphorically. I, I think we're used to this idea that people speak metaphorically. When Paul says that the church is the body of Christ, and then he goes on to say there is one body and one spirit. Okay, so it's not that we're like the body of Christ. Okay, and, and I know that he uses some metaphorical language when he uh-huh. talks about how we interact with one another. 
But he's saying that there is this union that is contiguous between Christ's physical resurrected body mm-hmm. and the church. Right. Um, because uh, the spirit of Christ dwells in believers, the right. church. Mm-hmm. And that makes believers in their bodies uh, the ongoing incarnation of Jesus. Right. Uh, the church as one body, as a corporate group, mm-hmm. is the ongoing incarnation of Jesus. Exactly. Um, and at the same time, we are his bride. Um, and so we were somehow distinct from him collectively, you know, that we look back at him in adoration and in service as a collective. And um, so that, those seem like mixed ideals until we realize that Paul this whole time has been and he's been he's been dancing around it. Um, this idea, this profound mystery, you know, he, he finally kind of pulls back the, the, the covering just for a minute and says, there it is, you know, and covers it back up. Um, but he's been, you mean where he been says, dancing around it. You mean where he says um, that I am saying that this refers to Christ and the church? Are right. you saying that's where he pulls back the cover? Yeah. And, and we had talked about how in Ephesians 2, he, he's using this language he, that he might make the, out of the two, one. Mm-hmm. Right, that there's this two becoming one throughout Ephesians, that that he's weaving together the idea of of the two becoming one, with the concept of the Trinity, mm-hmm. right, um, in the Ephesian letter. That the way that we really reflect a triune God, the way we express His image in this world is through a unity, mm-hmm. because God is a unity. And so that's why it's core. That's why it's central. God has somehow miraculously reproduced himself. Mm -hmm. That's why it's a shocking, astonishing thing, even for heavenly beings. Mm -hmm. Because here's somebody, you know, here's a being who is eternal, who somehow has shared with us his origin. He's made us born of heaven, Mm -hmm. right? Here's someone who is transcendent, who has somehow included very pedestrian, very ordinary beings into his transcendence. Mm-hmm. All of these barriers that shouldn't shouldn't be able to be defied are completely done away and folded in through the church, through what he's done in us. So it's pretty huge, right? <clears throat> and so in, in marriage, in giving marriage, and in declaring you know, that the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul is seeing not only a very early expression of the gospel, but a paramount expression of it. Okay, so the the line in Genesis, after the creation of Adam and then of Eve and the joining of the two, uh, the Genesis writer says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Mm Mm-hmm. Paul quotes that, mm-hmm. and he quotes it after talking to husbands and wives, but then he adds, however, I'm really saying that this refers to Christ and the church. Right. Yeah, I notice in Paul's quoting of it, so in the original Hebrew, it's uh, Genesis 2.24, um, and I'm reading in the NASB because it's a more word-for-word translation. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Mm -hmm. When Paul quotes it, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two Mm -hmm. will become one flesh. Mm -hmm. When Paul is highlighting, two is implied in the Mm -hmm. Hebrew, but it doesn't exist either in the Hebrew or I think in the Septuagint, Mm -hmm. and and yet Paul supplies it. Mm -hmm. But go back to that Ephesians 2, the both will become one, right? Mm -hmm. Two becoming one, two Mm -hmm. becoming one. That is this mystery that really wants to highlight that right and so he's saying that christ in the church is this two becoming one that is prefigured in the marriage covenant and i would go so far as to say that this is predictive of the life of christ and i mentioned this in our in-person gathering but that jesus first left his father in the incarnation Mm -hmm. if we look at this verse it, it number one it doesn't make a ton of sense it's grammatically pedantic it is um, and it doesn't describe the way anybody did marriage 
Mm-hmm. Right? People didn't leave their, the man especially did not leave his father and mother. That just didn't happen, especially if you had anything in terms of an estate. Right? So, yeah, even early on with the patriarchs, mm-hmm. you know, they brought him home. You know, Isaac brings uh, Rebecca into his mother's tent, mm-hmm. you know, the, for their, uh, the consummation of their marriage. I mean, you, you can't get any farther from this. If we see this as a prescriptive for a marriage, what we have to acknowledge is nobody did it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but there's something about it. A man, not a woman, a man. He'll leave his father. And, and then he's going to leave the his father. The Son of God became a man. Right. And that, that was leaving his father. Right. But really, he's a, he at least is manifested to Israel as a man even before that. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you look in the, in, um, where was it, in Judges with Gideon, and it says that God sent a man to tell Israel to convict them over their, their sin. Mm-hmm. And then it says, and then the angel of the Lord went and sat under this terebinth tree and was watching. So here you see that Jesus is showing up as a man, right? But he's going, he he's also lives with his father. So mm-hmm. I don't know what all that means or how it works. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that Jesus, as he has expressed himself to Israel, has expressed himself as a man. Okay. Anytime he showed up, it wasn't this light, this flash of light, and everybody falling to the ground. People are like, "What's up, man? How's it going?" You know, and then, they, then it's like, "Well, if it's really God speaking to me," and they had to set up some tests, and they never know it's actually God until He like, disappears into a cloud of smoke, and they're like, "What the heck, man?" You know, they finally then they want to fall to their to the ground, right? So God has has come as a man. He's mm-hmm. been a man, and throughout Israel's history, has walked next to Israel as a man. Um, so but, that man. That man that was uh, that appeared numerous times in the Old Testament. That man left his father in the incarnation. Yes, and his and then on the cross we see him saying goodbye to his mother. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these are phases: his incarnation, his crucifixion. They are the critical cornerstone moments of Jesus' life. It's these these are the ways that he is united to his wife, and that he is born. He lives this life with us, and he dies with us. Right, he he embraces the full human experience, um, and and because of that, he is now united to us. He's invited us into his experience. Right, he he's brought us home with him, made us one flesh with him as one flesh. And so this movement of the two becoming one, Paul is saying that the implications of this great mystery of the two becoming one is that at every level where the gospel arrives, two become one. So anytime there's a divide, it's it's just unconscionable to retain it under the auspices of the gospel, right? And and so as this is, the only divide would be belief and unbelief, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, he says, and we talked about this last time: accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Right. That this is how we obey the gospel. One major way that we obey the gospel as individuals is through this radical acceptance on the basis of faith um, and that really happens and transcends whatever divides we might have. And it does speak to like the Atlantic article and all of the division in the church over politics and stuff like that, that we are really being called to defy these divides that tend and, and they're over things that we think are important. Right. And maybe in fact are important, Yeah, but are not to define us as a people. Right. So I'm just going to skip on down to that to become one. And I want to, because I want to just briefly, uh, and we have to go, but so we had a family and they were here um, in this church and they're great people. And I still love them. I just, you know, my heart is just with them. Um, And during the Trump era, at some point in 2018 or so that they, they just couldn't be in the church anymore because they felt like there were some people who were, who were pro Trump in the church and they just couldn't be here. So they had to go. And you know what, what if they were right? You know, what if, what if being in favor of Trump would, was like, you know, just backing some evil dictator that was trying to sabotage American democracy, you know? Um, but if that were true, or what if just supporting Trump meant that you were defaming Jesus somehow in your personal life? Okay. Um, and, and we would say to that person, well, then, yeah, you probably should leave because there are people there who are, who are behaving in ways that are just 
unconscionable and scandalous, and you don't want to be around them, okay? But Paul, in Romans 15, 1 through 3, he says this, that, that the, those who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak. People who are pro-Trump in the, in the Christian movement are pro-Trump for what they think are good reasons. Mm-hmm. They're not just abdicating. They're not just compromising. They think, man, Trump is, is he's defending the unborn and, and stuff like that. So, And what if they're just really ignorant? What if they're just really stupid and, and they're doing something terrible? What if they're the weak it's really in terrible. Paul's uh, analogy? Right. So, So let's just say you're right. Let's just say that you're a good person and they are terrible, but they're terrible because they're ignorant. Okay. Then whose job is it to put up with somebody? Right. Yeah, if you're the, the strong, strong, Paul says the strong need to put up with the weak. Right. So on, on most divides, and accept one another because Christ has accepted you. Right. On most divides, I think I'm the strong one. Mm-hmm. And so if I do, what's my job? Kick you to the curb? Because you're weak, right? Right. I mean, in Christ, what is my calling? It's to put up with your garbage. He says in there, for Christ did not please himself. Right. So you should not please yourself. Do what would be, you know, immediately gratifying to you, Mm -hmm. but rather do the thing that's sacrificial and that pleases your brother. Right. But what if my brother is doing something that the world sees as evil? Right. Well, I certainly can't be a part of a group where... You know, when people from the outside look at it, they say, those people are evil, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. <laughs> Maintain and, the unity of the Spirit. Right. But it, the way Jesus didn't please himself was by bearing the shame, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Mm-hmm. So where Christians are providing a bad example and even besmirching Christ, Jesus doesn't check out. He remains loyal to his bride, even when she drags his name through the mud. Mm-hmm. And Paul is calling Christians to do the same thing, mm-hmm. to associate with those that the world maybe sees and even at times rightfully sees as wrong. Mm-hmm. And I know that that sounds weird. To and bear us. the shame of that. Right. And yet, if we really want to be like Jesus, we're going to have to carry our brother around even though he stinks Mm -hmm. um, and and get his stink on us because that's that's the call and that's identifying with his church is is to is uh, is part of identifying with jesus Mm -hmm. there's a a strong temptation to uh dis uh, dis uh to separate from the church Mm -hmm. uh because of a, a sense of loyalty to jesus and yet loyalty to jesus leads to loyalty to his people Right. And even when they do things that we're ashamed of. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to hear that. Otherwise, we, we retreat to some place of moral superiority and judgment, and we don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and being committed to the church is a, is, is a great foil to that kind of arrogant, virtue-based mentality. And we're actually fulfilling the very purpose of the church mm-hmm. when we do that. Right. Thanks, everybody. Good to be with you today. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, arguments, email them to discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. We'll see you next time.